You've heard of Grammarly, and you might think it's a fancy spell check, but people on your team have been using it and loving it for years because it does way more than you realize. Grammarly is a secure AI writing partner that works seamlessly across apps and websites and can write an instant first draft in a few clicks, not a few hours. When every word your team writes is clear, concise and on brand, companies can save 19 days per employee per year. Learn what better writing can do for your company at Grammarly.com. Grammarly. Easier said, done. The countdown has begun. This May, a thousand global leaders will gather in Doha for the Qatar Economic Forum powered by Bloomberg, held in conjunction with our official partners, the Qatar Ministry of Commerce and Industry and Media City Qatar and premier sponsor QNB. Join heads of state, influential ministers and leading CEOs to make new connections and gain unique insights. Learn more at QatarEconomicForum.com. From the heart of where innovation, money, and power collide in Silicon Valley and beyond, this is Bloomberg Technology with Caroline Hyde and Ed Ludlow. I'm Caroline Hyde of Bloomberg's World Headquarters in New York. And I'm Ed Ludlow in San Francisco. This is Bloomberg Technology. Coming up, we will break down the latest inflation print, what it means for tech stocks and the environment for investing in startups. Nishi Samaya is with us of Goldman Sachs, Mike Volpe of Index Ventures. Plus, we'll get a read on the health of the banking system in the wake of Silicon Valley Bank's collapse. Aaron Klein of the Brookings Institution joins with Perspective. And Elon Musk, he's back in the spotlight, this time with a two-hour-long Twitter spaces that played out before millions of listeners. We'll bring you the takeaways and why American not-profit media, NPR, has quit the platform. That and so much coming up throughout this hour. First, let's check in on what's happening in the public markets. You know the catalyst from a macro perspective, the CPI print inflation data. Actually, some soothing of concerns, maybe pulling back a little bit, but not enough to actually really put some fire beneath these stocks. At the moment, we're flat on the Nasdaq, but bouncing off of the lows of the day is we still think that the Federal Reserve will have to hike by 25 basis points come the next month, but maybe there's more appetite for some of those risk assets. Two-year yield flat on the day for the two-year. We've been moving around throughout the trading day, but we're at four percentage points. I'm looking at Goldman, and in particular the Nasdaq Golden Dragon. This is just showing that some of the heat's coming out of those Chinese stocks today. Alibaba's on the downside. We're seeing JD off as well. Some key movement out of Chinese stocks on the day from their American depository receipts perspective. We're off by three percent. Moving on, let's look at what's happening in the world of crypto. All eyes on the upgrade. Movement on seven months from the merge. We look at what's happening with the likes of the Shanghai upgrade. I'm looking at what's happening therefore with ETH. We're up more than a percentage point, so not that much. We'll nerves ahead of what could be a bit of volatility around 6.30 p.m. today, Ed. Yeah, there are some single tech names moving on sell-side sentiment. Netflix actually flat, but kind of slightly outperforming the Nasdaq 100. City saying, forget the noise around earnings and the stock volatility. This is a long-term buy. Microsoft, price target upgraded at Wedbush. Durable cloud growth on the horizon for that name. And then Cirrus Logic, a number of analysts are concerned about this Apple supplier because of a potential redesign around iPhone 15. That could hurt a name like Cirrus. That stock down 12%. Elsewhere, you look at some of the biggest 
points movers on the Nasdaq 100. There are names like Tesla that are markedly lower now or down 1.3% on Tesla as an example. That's a stock that jumped in pre-market after the CPI print. And that's where we want to go with this, right? I think Goldman, I saw a headline crossing the terminal, is sticking with that 25 basis points call for the upcoming meeting. But the psychology here changed really quick when the data was on estimates. Yeah, and I think it's on estimate. We're still seeing inflationary pressure. It's obvious, but it is dialing back in certain areas, Ed. We know it's dialing back perhaps on the price of rent, the price of housing, yes. particularly the grocery prices. I saw that eggs perhaps aren't going to be such an inflationary pressure going forward. But really, Ed, that. this is all about the moon music around risk assets, all around whether or not you want to be holding growth stocks in particular. Right, and it's not just public markets, right? When you have that narrative around higher rates, that impacts the cost of capital for startups mm. of all sizes. So let's think about the private markets as well yeah. and where the impact is there. Perfect guest. Nishi Samaya is with us to talk about all of that. Just appointed a senior leadership role at Goldman Sachs Private Wealth Unit. Samaya is now the global head of wealth management, private banking, lending and deposits. Having most recently been the co-head of growth equity. Also with us, and we thank her for bringing this interview, is Shanali Basak, friend of the show. <sighs> Nishi, what an extraordinary environment we all live in. And let's just talk a little bit about the macro perspective. And I want to go back to your previous role, the the fact that you were such a star at raising funds for still private companies, startups. Is it a good time? Is it still very difficult to raise funds? So I would say for private companies, particularly in the growth equity space, there's obviously been a huge dislocation. You've seen public market stocks drop by circa 70%. And I think the challenge um, for these companies is accepting in the private market space that valuations need to address, need to move along, where, where be reflective of where public markets are. And many companies don't want to raise in a depressed valuation environment. Mm. Um, however, you know, there's a notable exception with Stripe, as has been much talked about. And I think it was very interesting that Stripe was able to raise $6.5 billion of funding, um, which would say that there's plenty of money still available to growth companies in that asset class with for strong, talented management teams who are able to utilize transformative technology to continue to scale um, as long as they're realistic about um, the valuation environment mm-hmm. we're in. Nishi, it's so interesting because you are stepping into this role. This was a business that had $2.5 billion in revenue last year at Goldman Sachs, a lending business in the private wealth arm where a lot of people are founders like the ones you've worked with when you were the growth equity head. And so I'm really wondering with Silicon Valley Bank and the struggles that they've faced, what kind of opening does that create for Goldman Sachs? How much will Goldman be taking on a lot of clients that are maybe being turned away in a market like this. Yeah, this is a really exciting time for the private bank in many ways. I mean, we have what I think is an unparalleled origination channel for this business. If we think about, in particular, the founders that you're referring to from the growth equity space, the capital markets are essentially closed to them, as we just talked about. And if they don't want to take these depressed valuations in the private markets, you know, life happens for individuals, for entrepreneurs. They may have a tax bill upcoming. They may have a house purchase. They may be going through a divorce. And to create that liquidity then, there's only really one solution, which is to go down the private banking route um, and try to get leverage against the collateral that they have or the stakes that they have in their own companies. And I think we're very uniquely positioned to be able to provide that sort of one-stop solution for those clients, given we know how to underwrite those companies, we understand those risks, and we have great relationships with these founders, both from our alternatives investing franchise, my old business, but also from our world-class banking franchise. Now, it's interesting. I know this business is much broader than the growth business, but when you think about growth in particular, 
particular, a lot of these founders, they're already highly levered to the point you're, they're lending against assets that are still fluctuating in price, even in private markets. What are the risks that you at Goldman are not willing to take? What is too risky to lend to? I think it really is very situation specific. So as you rightly mentioned, we're very focused on leverage embedded within the companies themselves. So if you're looking to the company to take as collateral, we're very focused on shallow preference stacks. So where there isn't a lot of leverage on those companies. Um, also really sustainable unit economics. So a lot of that is driven by stage of company um, and the ability to sort of navigate through this cycle. And there'll be things we'll be looking to have this, the company cost, cut costs appropriately. Is there a path to profitability over time? Is there an exit on the horizon within a near-term time frame. I think those are the, some of the types of things we'll be looking for when we have these conversations. Interesting that you say what you're looking for in terms of strength of business and really strength of founder and ability to navigate these turbulent times. What about strength of sector? At one point it was all about crypto, now it's all about artificial intelligence. Are you that specific or do you actually step back and say, no, we cannot be as granular as which particular area of technology, which particular area of, of innovation or indeed just business building that your founders are in? Yeah, historically in the growth equity franchise in particular, we really place a huge emphasis on recurring revenue types of businesses, which were really primarily in the enterprise software space. There's a nice visibility of revenue stream that comes with those types of businesses. Um, and so I think those are always preferred from a lending perspective because you want that visibility of revenues, but it's not always, you know, we're going to have to service our clients' needs wherever they come. And so I think we'll be flexible and open-minded around that. Nishi, hello from San Francisco. I wonder how you, in your, in your former role and your new role, pass the data and the Fed. If you're underwriting a private market deal right now, how much pressure are you specifically under to seek a lower valuation? I think we saw the headline that Goldman's sticking with that 25 basis points call for the next meeting. But if this inflation and Fed regime stays in place, how do you balance that return against the risk of operating in private markets in that environment? Yeah, I mean, obviously, when we're looking at lending, we have to take our own view on what we think the business is worth on a spot basis. Part of the reason many of these um, entrepreneurs might be looking for this alternative source of liquidity is because they don't want to take that valuation risk in the private markets. So we will obviously be factoring our own views around what a spot capital markets um, valuation may look like, maybe even be taking a discount to that. But we only need a certain amount of coverage for our loan to be whole, as it were. So we, we do sort of overlay our own valuation methodology within the private bank um, on these companies that we're looking at. I'm really interested in the client base as well, which I'm sure you now have a pretty broad understanding of. Where does the demand come from? You know, I've broken a lot of news over the last few years on Rivian, for example, these kind of late growth stage companies. Rivian did go public, but you see names like T. Rowe Price, Goldman, Fidelity coming in alongside traditional venture capital. You know, where, where does Goldman sit in that landscape and where are its clients pushing for more access to those private companies? So from a private company perspective, I mean, our entire growth equity franchise and platform is built around sourcing those companies, investing in them, hopefully scaling them along the way and creating liquidity events or strategic takeouts, which where our banking franchise can be very helpful. Um, so we are, and you know, I would say what we've really seen over the past 18 months is a bit of a retrenchment of the 
the growth equity tourists. And in fact, this is a great time as a growth equity investor. If you have dry powder and have some patience, um, we think that this will be a great opportunity to be able to continue to invest in world-class companies given the valuation environment is so rapidly changing. I want to talk about valuations a little more here because you did work on Stripe. That was pretty fascinating. $4 billion fundraise. And a lot of money came from Goldman's own private clients, high net worth individuals. But there was a down round that was associated with a lot of this. Have we hit rock bottom when you look across the industry? Have we, do we have more to go when you look at these growth names and how much further down the valuations are headed? I think Stripe's just a fascinating example because I think they really bit the bullet and did the right thing for the capital structure. They recognized the environment we were in and they wanted to be able to create enough incentives for retention for the employees to be able to continue this journey, this growth journey, even at reduced growth rates, which perhaps you could argue more durable than the hyper growth that they'd been experiencing at the peak of um, the pandemic. Um, in terms of actual valuations, I think what you're seeing is many companies hoping to survive this period by managing costs and expenses and just preserving as much cash as possible at the expense of growth to not have to test the valuation environment. And so I think, I'm, I think as an investor, you're hoping that what Stripe will do is unlock more down rounds so that you can actually help recapitalize these companies on the next leg of their journey. We haven't seen that yet. Do you think also that we are indeed in a credit crunch from somebody that's entering this lending business here? The reality is it's not just Silicon Valley Bank. The reality is, is that there are investors that are under pressure. Some of the folks that would have gotten into things like Stripe, they are under pressure. Uh, do you think that there's going to be a lot more pain when companies go out there and look for more capital ahead? Yeah, I think there's no doubt that we are in a much more challenging macroeconomic environment and, you know, you're seeing credit contraction, as you rightfully said, um, but we're at the very early innings of the credit cycle. Um, you know, you're seeing pockets of pain most prevalently right now in commercial real estate. There's been a lot of press about that, office buildings in particular. Um, so I think we're paying particular focus to um, clients that have ex large exposure, debt exposures to that asset class. Um, but I think this, this is going to be an environment where there's huge opportunities. I mean, you're already seeing in public fixed income markets, you're able to earn yields wider than I've mm -hmm. seen for the last 15 years for the same credit risk. Um, that will reflect in private markets too. All right, Nishi Samaya of Goldman Sachs, thank you. And of course, thank you to our own Shanali Bassett for bringing us that conversation, going from growth equity deployment to Goldman's banking. That was an in-depth conversation. We're all talking about it. Last night, Elon Musk took to Twitter to talk about Twitter. During a two-hour-long Spaces conversation with the BBC that played out before millions of listeners, Musk reaffirmed that Twitter is operating at about break-even and actually could become cash flow positive as soon as this quarter. Yeah, look, he dodged a lot of questions, pretty simple, direct questions, most of them about how he felt about laying people off. Mm. But he reiterated this point that if he had not done that, then Twitter would be in a precarious financial dis situation. He did say the advertisers have started to come back and X is the future of the everything app. But beyond that, I, there wasn't a lot new that we learned, Cara. What, what's interesting is the aftermath, right? And the fact that the BBC yeah. was conducting this interview, NPR, which itself is very much an independent media, yes. which is not government funded, as they would say, is eventually quitting Twitter today, right? Because of the concern over labeling. Yeah, and over the two hours, NPR did not specifically come up to the best of my memory. BBC did, and Musk discussed about the idea that a more appropriate label might be publicly funded 
mm. rather than its current label, but didn't sort of commit to when that change would be made. So yeah. um, I don't know if you, you had any other key takeaways, Caro. Well, just the length of it and, and the, matter, yeah. the manner in which it all occurred. But what's interesting is the competitive threats, right? He seemed, the key takeaway yes. was, look, people are coming back to the platform, advertisers, even though they lose a key tweeter, yes. which is NPR. But what about that competitive threat, in particular coming from new places like Substack? Yeah, so Substack's interesting because it's also emerged as this challenger to Twitter because it's a newsletter platform, but it's announced this new product that looks remarkably similar, right, called Substack Notes. Remember what the CEO, Chris Best, had to say on the show about that? So I think all of online media is basically either going to have to turn into TikTok or it's going to have to turn into Substack in the next little bit. And Substack Notes is sort of our, our play to bring the easy sort of sharing the short form, the ability to recommend anything to the subscription network that is Substack. And we're tremendously excited about it. So Substack fancies itself as a competitor. What I would say is that Musk said, you know, user hours are just surging, user uses up. He was pretty bullish about the health of the Twitter platform. We'll have to wait and see. Um, coming up, though, Caroline, we're going to dig in more into the impact of the Silicon Valley bank collapse on the banking system at large. We have Brookings fellow and economist Aaron Klein on the program coming up. This is Bloomberg. What if everyone at work were an expert communicator? What if every doc, message and email they wrote was perfectly clear and concise? Inbox numbers would drop, customer satisfaction scores would rise and everyone would be more productive. That's where Grammarly comes in. Grammarly is a secure AI writing partner that understands your business and can transform it through better communication. Companies that use Grammarly save an average of 19 days per employee per year. That's because with Grammarly's AI, what used to take a few hours only takes a few clicks, like generating an instant first draft in your company voice or tailoring a message to your specific audience and goals. And Grammarly's personalized on-brand writing help is built in everywhere your team works, across 500,000 apps and websites. Plus, it's safe, secure, and already IT-approved. Join 70,000 teams who trust Grammarly with their words and their data. Learn more at Grammarly.com. Grammarly. Easier said, done. Collaborate for a greener future at the Bloomberg Green Festival, a groundbreaking celebration of the thinkers, doers, and innovators leading the way. From design and culture to technology, science, and entertainment. Hear from inspirational speakers and immerse yourself in climate solutions, July 10th through 13th in Seattle. Title sponsor, Amazon. Official airline, Alaska Airlines. Get 20% off using promo code RADIO20 at BloombergLive.com slash Green Festival. Deposits at JP Morgan, Wells Fargo and Bank of America are expected to have tumbled 50, $521 billion from a year earlier, the biggest drop in a decade. That, according to the analyst estimates compiled by Bloomberg. The coming first quarter disclosures from big U.S. banks could intensify concerns about deposit mix and should lenders miss expectations, set off more inquiries about the health and future of the industry in the wake of Silicon Valley banks collapse. For more on the topic, let's bring in Aaron Klein, economic senior fellow 
fellow at the Brookings Institution and an expert in financial regulatory reform. You know, immediately following that SVB collapse weekend, Caroline and I were there. We all talked about the winners who took deposit outflows. Now we're talking about the health of this sector. Which is it? Were there winners in the banking sector or is the whole industry at serious risk here? Well, look, I think one of the big problems here is that a lot of the money left the banking system to money market mutual funds. And you say, why money market mutual funds? They're less guaranteed than bank deposits. Part of the problem here is the Federal Reserve and the Treasury Department have bailed out money market mutual funds twice, once during COVID and once during the 2008 financial crisis. So there's a bit of a feeling from investors that there's an implicit guarantee in these money market mutual funds, and then they're searching for yield. So I think in some ways the banking sector is going to contract further as a result of prior government bailouts offer having a, a lingering effect. Let's just look at some of your writing now, Aaron, and I've given my production team no help to tell them that we're going to bring up one of the key focuses of your writings from Brookings is the dirty secret about bank holding company regulation. And I think we think about the re repercussions of what's happened to SVB on amount of deposits and what, who's winning, who's losing. But who didn't come off well as the regulators here, perhaps? Do you think there's been enough of a feedback loop yet to decide on the way in which, well, ultimately, the Fed needs to rethink about the way it analyzes these banks. Yeah, America has a really strange banking system and a bank regulatory system that corresponds. The Federal Reserve regulates all bank holding companies, which are the top-level parent that have subsidiary banks and other companies. Sometimes that bank is regulated by the Fed, as in the case of SVB. Other times it's not. There's the OCC, the FDIC. We have, we have too many bank regulators, in my opinion, mm -hmm. in, in the US. But the Fed is a rare case where you have this holding company and the bank. Silicon Valley Bank, so far, all the conversation's been focused on the bank. I'm interested in this venture capital arm, this other arm of SVB, and what their relationship were to the depositors, to the companies, the tech companies that were at SVB. Why did the Fed allow a bank like SVB to be 95% uninsured deposits? Was there some relationship where when the VCs invested through Silicon Valley Bank or one of their other partners, that it forced the tech companies to stay yeah. and so they wouldn't move out? And I don't think we focused enough nearly on the Fed's role as a bank holding company regulator. And in my writing, you'll see I point out not just SVB, but there are all these other little smaller bank holding companies that seem to not be regulated at all. Meanwhile, they're focused heavily on JP Morgan Chase, BOA, Merrill. So what about a First Republic? or some of the other lenders that have been tainted, whether rightly or wrongly, because it felt like in many ways Silicon Valley Bank was pretty idiosyncratic, but still we see so much pressure on some of these smaller oh, lenders. Yeah, so, so I think there have been problems at, at a wide number of lenders through the holding company and the Fed just hasn't done anything. I can't explain to you why a company like Dickinson Financial out of Kansas City, which runs a series of banks who do nothing other than milk people for overdraft fees, has been allowed to, to, to exist. This is a regulatory strategy that they have at the holding company level because they're all these little banks, Armed Forces Bank, Academy Bank, all these things do are overdrafts. They're check cashers. Yet the Federal Reserve keeps giving them a clean bill of health. I don't know what it's going to take to stop this and have more serious bank holding company regulation because the, so far Congress has not yet held the Feds accountable. Uh, Aaron, we'll go to those banks for comment that you say, in your opinion, are milking depositors for overdraft fees. Let's end it here very quickly. What's the net result of this? 
regulation, government intervention, what happens? Well, I, I think the net result is twofold. Number one, the government's found itself in an untenable situation of having bailed out the uninsured depositors at these handful of banks. And the question is, what are the uninsured depositors in other situations? There's mounting pressure in Congress to raise a deposit insurance cap, which I think would be a mistake, a big transfer of wealth. Uh, but that political pressure seems to be snowballing. And the other question is the real economy. And the real economy is going to experience some level of credit crunch because as money moves out of the banking system into other things like money market mutual funds, it doesn't get recycled the same way. Think of credit like the lifeblood of the economy and the, the heart of the system is kind of fluttering. Well, heart of the system that you've been trying to put out thought leadership pieces on, particularly on why perhaps the FDR limit, the, the insured deposit limit, shouldn't be extended higher. Aaron Klein, great to have him in the house this time, Economic Senior Fellow at Brookings Institution. It's very important for um, the regulators to have a deep understanding of the industry. And I can say, without offending anybody, I think that today most regulators don't have industry experience. Um, if you look at the banking sector, many regulators have worked in banks. But today, most regulators have not worked in a crypto company before. Welcome back to Bloomberg Technology. It's very important for um, the regulators to have a deep understanding of the industry. And I can say, without offending anybody, I think that today most regulators don't have industry experience. Um, if you look at the banking sector, many regulators have worked in banks. But today, most regulators have not worked in a crypto company before. Welcome back to Bloomberg Technology. I'm Caroline Hyde in New York. That was Binance CEO CZ speaking at the Web3 Festival over in Hong Kong. And let's stick with some Hong Kong-related stocks right now in the public market. I'm looking at the Golden Dragon China Index at the moment, off by 3%. In fact, US-listed Chinese stocks falling the most, well, since at least three weeks now. We've got pressure on key names. Tencent, a key investor, is perhaps offloading some stock. We'll have more on that in a moment. But Alibaba's down 5%. JD.com, PDD, Trip.com, you name it, they're on the lower side. Even though it's NASDAQ 100 manages to tread water, even though there was up higher after the inflation print came in, showing some hope of some curtailment in those inflationary pressures. Therefore, well, the Fed probably still going to have to hike 25 basis points in the next meeting. But for now, maybe some optimism. NASDAQ 100 only up by less than a tenth of a percent, though. And chip stocks on the downside after we see maybe some of the profit taking, after we see a run up in Micron yesterday and some of the other key names in the chip industry were off by four tenths of a percent but we're also keeping a close eye on crypto i want to keep an eye on not only what's happening in bitcoin which has been up as you said Ed, a, a moment ago above thirty thousand, but getting a bit into eth this is notable because we've got all important upgrade happening about 6 30 p.m new york time tonight we expect it to occur and actually people anticipating maybe a bit of volatility interesting to see a bid I think everyone is always anticipating volatility when it comes to crypto. <laughs> so let's stick with it. Venture capitalists have been pulling back, actually, from investing in crypto startups, an industry that's frankly been plagued by scandals and regulatory uncertainty. Private funding in the first quarter of the year fell to $2.4 billion, an 80% decline from its all-time high during the same period a year ago. This according to data from research firm PitchBook. Now, joining us with her insights on VC funding for the crypto space is Kate Lawrence, CEO and founder of Blockcelerate VC. There is Thanks a dichotomy 
Oh, you're very welcome to the program. There is this dichotomy, Kate, between the trajectory of Bitcoin, Ether, and the backward-looking data of VC money going into crypto-related startups. Why? The trajectory of the Bitcoin and Ethereum has been primarily up this year. Bitcoin is up 80%. Ethereum is up 60%. Yet the venture capitalists are pulling back, investing in, in Web3, as you said, 80% down. It's a really good question. Um, I think that everybody is waiting on the sidelines for the regulators to come in and set clear rules. Uh, there's a lot of risk uh, associated with lack of regulatory clarity. And uh, for the most part, when we look at the venture capital data, we're not specifically looking at the Web3 funds. We're looking at the uh, traditional Web2 funds investing in, in, in Web3. From my experience, we are a Web3 fund. We haven't pulled back investing. In fact, we're executing nine deals right now, the record-breaking number for us this year. And that's what I'm seeing consistent with other venture funds focused on the Web3 specifically right now. Okay, if you're a VC that's backing crypto and blockchain-related companies, do you therefore, by default, have to be a Bitcoin maximalist? No. Bitcoin is an important innovation. Bitcoin is the first use case to the blockchain, similar to email being the first mainstream use case to the internet. But email is not the last use case to the internet, and Bitcoin is not going to be the last use case to the blockchain. What Ethereum is doing is creating the TCPIP layer for this new internet economy. And on top of that TCPIP, we're seeing an explosion of innovation that is happening where uh, developers are coming in and building innovative applications on top of it. And that's where value accrual is happening. So, Kate, are you still writing checks to this explosion of entrepreneurs who want to build on top of these? Absolutely. Uh, we are long-term mission-driven investors. Uh, we started the fund with a fundamental vision that blockchain is one of the most fundamental technologies that is going to uh, bring trillions of dollars worth of value over the next five to ten years. And we've been through these cycles before. This is not the first cycle uh, that, that we're experiencing. Yeah. So, in fact, we're doubling down on the, on the companies because, uh, frankly, it's a better time to invest now. Kate, it's interesting. Some are anticipating perhaps more institutional interest in ETH after this ending of the upgrade, shall we call it. We're hearing it's Chappella to some, Shanghai upgrade to others, but ultimately the moving of proof of work to proof of stake for the Ethereum blockchain. How important is today's upgrade, the finishing touches? How much could it attract more people to ETH and indeed to more staking protocols full stop? It is very important. It's a, a very important day for the industry and the entire community is watching this upgrade very closely because only 15% of total Ethereum in circulation is currently staked. It's $30 billion worth of Ethereum, which seems like a big number. But in the grand scheme of things, with Ethereum market cap being $230 billion, it's a drop in the bucket. So what this upgrade opens the floodgate for is de-risked proof-of-work mechanism, where now not only are you able to stake and generate yield, 
you can also withdraw the Ethereum that you would have staked. So institutions um, are waiting for this moment because they, for the large part, are holding a, a large amount of Ethereum in circulation today. Ed, it's interesting that many holding their breath, many anticipating not much volatility, many hoping that it will start to bring in more money. Uh, Shanghai, Chappelle, you name it, they love a good branding of something that keeps the outsiders feeling like they're outsiders. Well, you, you get this feeling, Carrie, that everyone's going to have a watch party. They kind of all get together <laughs> digitally or in a living room somewhere and kind of count down the clock like it's New Year's Eve. I mean, Kate, you can tell us whether that's your plan. I guess, how closely do you track technological developments like this? You know, Carrie and I talk about the volatility in the market, the regulatory scrutiny or lack of, but it just seems like everyone's just waiting for tech upgrades. The uh, To answer your first question, um, I don't have a party plan, but I think that a lot of my fellow Ethereum holders are, are gathering. Um, I'm watching the upgrades pretty closely. I've been an Ethereum backer for many years. I've actually mined Ethereum in 2016, 2017 in my apartment in Seattle, taking advantage of the cost efficiencies at the time. But um, I think what we can expect is the frequency of upgrades uh, decelerating after this main Shanghai upgrade because Ethereum is becoming a large monolithic chain where each upgrade actually sends the shockwaves, if you will, to the rest of the development community, which is what uh, we would have expected from a mature protocol like uh, Ethereum. All right, Kate Lawrence of Blockcelerate VC, taking it easy for the big watch party tonight. Thank you. <laughs> Uh, let's talk a little bit about artificial intelligence. OpenAI, the maker of AI systems like ChatGPT, says it could use some more help from its users to spot and report any bugs or unusual glitches on its programs. They're even offering as much as $20,000 to people that find bugs. Bloomberg's resident AI reporter, Rachel Metz, joins me now in San Francisco. I want to go into the details of what they're doing. But what I see on Twitter is people saying, hold on. Weren't you all about AGI, artificial general intelligence? You're supposed to have tools that do all this anyway. Do you just not or what? I mean, I think it's a, a little bit harder than that, right? Um, I mean, where we are now is not there. Um, and what they're trying to do is do what a lot of tech companies have already done, which is say, hey, we can be better at finding our security issues if we have more sort of eyes on it, um, looking for different weaknesses in our different products, right. um, the APIs that they offer. Um, they just started doing plugins uh, for other services like OpenTable, for instance, um, Expedia, and people can look for security vulnerabilities in their various products. This is a bug bounty. Yes. But, but I guess, is there anything from ChatGPT as one example that's kind of jumped out as an issue with the platform, a common report on difficulties that users are having. Well, see, there's like two different things happening there. One would be like issues that people might have with the models. Um, those yeah. actually aren't part of the bug bounty program. So um, like jailbreak models that people have been using and that we've reported on, those wouldn't be considered things that people are going to be getting a bounty for um, or anything that the model just makes up, for instance. Um, there's, there are ways to report that, but it's not, it's not part of this. Caro, when this story hit the Bloomberg terminal after our show yesterday, it, it made me think we're back to a discussion about how nascent this technology mm. is really. Yeah, even though it's been in our hands for several months and everyone feels that they interacted with it and everyone always amazes me, Rachel, with just how unique and creative people can be with using ChatGPT and other products for that end. What about these bounty hunters though? Because there's some great writing on, on jailbreak prompt enthusiasts in particular. And, and how are these two things dovetailing together? 
Um, I mean, you may see some people that are interested in jailbreak prompts. They might also be interested in looking for security vulnerabilities, which they would then report to the company. I mean, just in the last uh, barely 24 hours, um, a handful of people have submitted uh, bugs to OpenAI through mm. BugCrowd, which is the partner program or partner company, rather, that they're working with, um, and gotten paid out up to, I think, over $6,000 was one of them. They assign them different priorities depending on um, a rubric that uh, Bug Crowd has long established. And, and actually, according to that, you get different amounts of money. Is this in some way either making the community more involved and in also some way trying to fight back against the concerns around ethics of AI, around the way in which it's developing at such a pace and perhaps bringing in more individuals and humanity to an ultimately computer-driven uh, enthusiasm that we all have at the moment? In a sense, perhaps. I mean, this is, as I said, this is a program that's pretty common, and as you guys have seen in the past, it's a pretty common thing for tech companies to do. It's also like, it can be a very tech-effective, uh, tech it can be a very cost-effective mm -hmm. way to find security issues. Um, and you also could have more eyes on these things than you might otherwise have if you are trying to do all of it in-house, which with a product like this that's being used in more and more ways by more and more companies could be really difficult. Rachel Metz, it's a great story. Got a lot of pickup across .com and on Twitter as well. We thank you so much for breaking it all down. Meanwhile, coming up, more on the SVB fallout and its impact on startups, but also, well, the AI investment opportunity. Just talking about open AI, what are the other areas you can be putting money to work? Mike Volpe, you know him, of course, of Index Ventures, is going to be up next. This is Bloomberg. What if everyone at work were an expert communicator? What if every doc, message and email they wrote was perfectly clear and concise? Inbox numbers would drop, customer satisfaction scores would rise and everyone would be more productive. That's where Grammarly comes in. Grammarly is a secure AI writing partner that understands your business and can transform it through better communication. Companies that use Grammarly save an average of 19 days per employee per year. That's because with Grammarly's AI, what used to take a few hours only takes a few clicks, like generating an instant first draft in your company voice or tailoring a message to your specific audience and goals. And Grammarly's personalized on-brand writing help is built in everywhere your team works, across 500,000 apps and websites. Plus, it's safe, secure, and already IT-approved. Join 70,000 teams who trust Grammarly with their words and their data. Learn more at Grammarly.com. Grammarly. Easier said, done. The countdown has begun. From May 14th to 16th, a thousand global leaders will gather in Doha for the Qatar Economic Forum powered by Bloomberg. Join heads of state, influential ministers and leading CEOs to make new connections, gain unique insights and uncover valuable opportunities in one of the world's most rapidly rising regions. Request your invite for this exclusive event at QatarEconomicForum.com. All right, time for the VC roundout. SoftBank is selling its early stage VC arms, SoftBank Ventures Asia, after it suffers billions of dollars of losses from failed startup bets. It will be sold to an entity led by Taizo Sun, the younger brother of SoftBank founder Masayoshi Sun. 
And shares of Japanese moonlander maker iSpace went untraded on a glut of buy orders on their market debut. As investors bet on the startup and the country's space development effort, shares were quoted at more than twice the offering price at market close on Wednesday, according to the Tokyo Stock Exchange. Caroline. What a novel thing, Ed, an IPO with a glut of buy orders. What sort of an environment is this at the moment for startups that want to go public? Feels like the market is shut. Mike Volpe is the perfect person to be asking in today's VC Spotlight. He's, of course, general partner in Index Ventures, holds $3.2 billion across its latest funds. And, Mike, these IPOs are rare. At the moment, people are trying to raise funds to stay in business. How much are you seeing an ability, a desire to write checks at the moment to the startup community you look at? Yeah, Caroline, thanks for having me again. I would say that uh, generally the climate is thawing right now. 2022 was a really slow year in venture, uh, partly because the public markets took a big step back with the higher interest rates and the desire for companies to achieve profitability, multiples compressed. We're still generally in that climate, but I think the venture community has found a few green shoots, and in particular you talked in the earlier segment about AI. That's definitely an area where we're seeing a lot of green shoots. But you are seeing some dollars begin to move. Okay, let's talk about the green shoots in AI and perhaps the hype cycle that some would call it. Where in the area of AI, generative AI, where in the building blocks do you want to invest at the moment? Yeah, I'd say broadly three categories. Uh, One are these so-called foundation models. Uh, This was what uh, Rachel was talking about earlier, but it is essentially these generative models that are very large, very complex, and they generate text. They can help you search and retrieve. They can summarize and so forth. That's a key area of investment. There's OpenAI, Cohere, companies like that. Uh, A second area is is what we generally call picks and shovels for AI. These are basically tools, uh, operational tools, uh, training tools that manage large banks of semiconductors, GPUs, and so forth, labeling or data enhancement technologies. All of these are used to create foundation models or maybe to help the third category, which is AI-powered applications. So these are applications like Notion or Gong, which essentially use pieces of AI inside them to make the application better. All three categories are very interesting and all of them are drawing reasonable amount of venture capital towards them. And you've already allocated to that space scale AI, of course, one of them, Mike. But Ed, what's interesting is AI just seems to be an outlier here at the moment. Yeah, you know, you go back to the pitch book data, the Venture Capital Association data, first three months of this year, you have to go back 13 quarters or so to get to that low level of venture-backed funding for startups. And so I guess my question to you, Mike, is why do you go for an industry that's an outlier? What is it that, that catches your eye when the debt crosses your desk that thinks, tough environment, I better invest in this, though, just in case? Yeah, I, I think... Our experiences index is that there are a few moments in the history of technology where you see something that is truly transformational and has a long-term impact. Uh, I remember early in my career when I first saw a web browser connected to the internet, I had that feeling. Or when the iPhone came out, I had that feeling. And it is that sense of like this technology has a very broad-reaching deep impact and we better get in early. Sometimes we might might not know what the winners are, 
but we better get in early to take advantage of the consequential significant changes and impacts and transformations that technology is going to have, and that's certainly what AI feels like today. Uh, one, one player bringing impact and energy to the private markets is Saudi Arabia, and I bring that up because this week we've been talking about its pledges of investments in the video game space, for example. What is Index's attitude towards Saudi? You know, I, I think A16, Quad2, they all count Sanibel as an LP, for example. They seem ready to deploy big dollars right now in private startups. Yeah, they've been around in the business for a while at Index. We've chosen not to take Middle Eastern money as an LP, and that's an important value for us for an assortment of reasons. Um, others, I think, particularly want they want to raise large funds, find that the deep pockets available in the Middle East are useful to them. Um, they are a player. I think fundamentally, though, uh, the venture business is constituted by Western venture capital firms, at least in our market, that focus on early stage and growth investing. And I think that's going to be the core of the business for a while. Mike, I mean, Ed brings up, therefore, a global story of flow of money. You're a global VC investor. We know you from Europe, too. How much are you looking at opportunities in Europe? How much is the regulatory environment enticing in places like Europe? For index ventures, about 40% to 45% of our dollars that we invest go to Europe. Um, Europe is a very different kind of a market. It's much more distributed than what you experience in the U.S. We have a bit of a concentration around the Bay Area and New York. And so it requires a different style of investing. But we do see continued very interesting entrepreneurship. And, you know, at least in, hint in index's history, we've seen fantastic stories like Adyen, for example, or Farfetch, which have all come out of Europe. And and produced fantastic returns for our LPs. Mike, we go back to that data, lowest level for 13 quarters in the first three months of this year, crypto investments dropping. Are we bottoming out, though, to your mind and your experience looking at these private markets broadly and in the crypto space? I would separate the crypto from the mainstream VC market. Okay. I would say that this whole AI phenomenon represents a coming out of the bottom for VC investing. I, I, I don't know that we will return to the peaks of 2020 and 2021. Those are some pretty astronomical years. But I, I think we're beginning to see a pullout from that bottom. I, crypto is a very hard one to predict because at the end of the day, it, it is an up and down market. It has dynamics of its own. And I don't think it's actually representative of the rest of the VC business as much. Whereas I see some of the investing that's happening, particularly in AI, but all the other categories that we talked about, a, a return to normalcy. All right. Mike Volpe, General Partner Index, giving us that global view when it comes to venture, Caroline. Time now for Talking Tech. Tencent shares in Hong Kong. Look, they tumbled by the most in over two months. On signs that its largest shareholder, its Netherlands-based Process, may extend the selling of its Chinese tech firm's stock. Process planned to deposit an additional $96 million in shares into the city's stock-clearing systems, typically a precursor to selling. Job cuts, meanwhile, at Amazon's Twitch division are raising some concerns among former employees and content monitors about the popular live streaming site's ability to police abusive or illegal behavior, issues that have plagued the business, in fact. The layoffs at Twitch have eliminated about 15% of the staff responsible for monitoring such behavior. 
And Apple supplier Cirrus Logic fell in trading today as analysts highlighted risks to the company's bottom line from a reported design change to the iPhone 15. Now, the Austin, Texas-based company derives 88% of its revenue from Apple. That's according to supply chain data compiled by Bloomberg. One analyst saying that higher-end iPhone 15 Pro models will abandon the closely watched solid-state button design instead using the classic volume button design due to manufacturing challenges. Ed. Another Apple supply chain story. Well, Caroline, that does it for this edition of Bloomberg Technology. Set your alarms for that big Ethereum technology upgrade coming this evening, wherever you are in the world. And a lot to recap in the show as well, Caro. Don't forget, check out the podcast wherever you get your podcasts. Apple, Spotify, iHeart, on our Bloomberg platforms. Three days into the week, tech firmly in focus. This is Bloomberg. The countdown has begun. This May, a thousand global leaders will gather in Doha for the Qatar Economic Forum powered by Bloomberg, held in conjunction with our official partners, the Qatar Ministry of Commerce and Industry and Media City Qatar and premier sponsor QNB. Join heads of state, influential ministers and leading CEOs to make new connections and gain unique insights. Learn more at QatarEconomicForum.com.